This Week at Hope Point. Aren't you overwhelmed? Aren't you sick of the disappointment of putting someone up, maybe yourself, maybe a, a spouse or a, 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 a key leader or a political party or a reform? Aren't you tired of putting it up on this throne in your life and watching it disappoint you? Maybe it's time to pull it off of the throne. When a king or a queen does that, they abdicate the throne. And I just wonder if there's even one person today who would say, today needs to be my abdication day. Today needs to be the day that I step off of the throne of my life, surrender that, ru- that right to the rightful king. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Caleb speaks to us from God's holy word. Well, I hope you have your Bible with you. And if you do, would you go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel? We're going to be in chapter 8. Just a quick helper for you if you need help finding that book. You can go to 2 Samuel. When you get there, just turn over one book. And you'll be at 1 Samuel and then just go to chapter 8. Simple as that. And we're going to pick up there in verse 1 of chapter 8. I want to fill you in as you turn there. Um, Samuel, as the book is named after, is the leader of the people, the last judge of Israel. This is a time period in Israel's history where God saw fit to lead his people by raising up a judge at a specific time and place to lead the people through a certain set of circumstances. And then when it was necessary, he would raise up another leader. And so the book of Judges, which comes right before 1 Samuel, uh, shows the 12 of these judges doing just that. Then 1 Samuel, we see Eli step in and, and, and judge the people. And now Samuel has taken his place as the final of these judges. Samuel also acted as a prophet. He heard directly from, from God and, and gave that word to the people. He spoke on behalf of God to the people. And he also acted as a priest. He was the religious leader in many ways, pointing the people of Israel towards how to to honor God in their life. And so key influential leader of the Old Testament. But when we pick up in chapter eight, where we're going to be today, things begin to turn for him and for the people of Israel. So look with me at verse one here of chapter eight. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Now, he's getting old, commentators say, somewhere between 54 and 60. And so he delegates here a little bit. He's not handing things over to his sons as as though they are now the judge. That wasn't his job to do. That would be God's job to choose a judge for the people, to choose a leader. But he's sort of deputizing them here, giving them some authority to help him out as he tries to lead the people of Israel. Because as he mentioned, it's getting old here. So he's got these two sons, and he's modeled for them what it looks like to follow God faithfully, to lead the people faithfully. He's even been proactive in his naming, names of his first son, Yahweh is God, or the Lord is God. And then his second son, Abijah, gets the name after, my father is the Lord, my father is Yahweh. So he's sort of trying to set his sons up on a path to follow in his lead to have their eyes fixed on the Lord their God and and to honor him as they live and now as they lead. This is his intent. Seems like like a good parent here. And so he entrusts them with the deputizing work of being a judge down in Beersheba. 
Now, if we go back to chapter 7, uh, you'll see exactly what Samuel's leadership looked like. It says he judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah. That was his home. He lived in Ramah. So just to kind of give you a visual here, if you look at the picture of Israel, and it's kind of small, I know some of these cities are hard to see, but basically up here in this north part, this would be that circuit that he mentioned right here, Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And then he would return to Ramah right there where his home was. And if you remember what he said in chapter eight, he asked his sons, or he sort of empowered his sons to judge Israel from down south, down here in Beersheba. All right, so you can see the distance there, about 57 miles apart there, but he's just trying to sort of spread his influence, spread his vision of the, of the, of the you know, land of Israel, to see more of what's going on so he can better judge them. He's not giving them the reins. He's sharing this with them as he gets older and less capable of doing that. All right, just want to point that out because it's going to come up as a problem here in a few minutes. Now, things don't go too well here when he gives the, the sons some authority. Verse 3 says, his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So they're handed a little bit of authority, and as people tend to do, they mess it up. They turn aside from the, the, the path that had been established for them by their father. I mean, he tried to be a good dad. He, he named them intentionally, sort of proactively to sort of set them upright. And then he even showed them his ways. So they didn't walk in his way. So they intentionally walked away from the way he had lived in front of them and perverted justice once they were given just a little bit of authority. That's what happens when you get put people in charge, it seems like. And so what does this cause the elders of Israel to do? It says in verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They sort of conspired together, going to have a little intervention here, and go in one unified voice and confront Samuel for his poor leadership here because they see some problems in what he's done. And so verse 5 says, And they said to him when they came to Ramah, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. The order that's been established so far is no longer working. Let's go back to the drawing board and come up with something better, Samuel. I love the way, too, that when they bring this request to them, notice their opening line. Samuel, you're old and you're a bad dad. Now, please give us what we want. Not really the best way to butter him up or set him up to make a request, but this is what they do. And it sort of reveals to us the first of three attitudes that I see in these elders as to why they would demand a king. I see, I see some arrogance here. Arrogance that would look at God's anointed leader, the one that God had placed in Ramah to judge and lead the people and say, no, 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 you're not cutting it anymore. We no longer see you as fit to lead. That's some arrogance there. Because what they say to Samuel, they're not only saying to Samuel, they're saying to God, God, you have messed up. God, your rule and reign of our people is not, is not sufficient any longer. So we need a king. Give us this king. There's no pretty please at the end of that request either, is there? I mean, they're demanding. Maybe your translation even says that in the section. We demand a king. It's the title of this message. We demand a king. We're not asking. There's arrogance in the heart of these elders as they ask Samuel to provide a king for them. But there's also some ignorance. Notice this desire of theirs. They want to look like all the nations. They want to be like everybody else. 
Every parent in here has heard that before. Everybody else has, fill in the blank. Everybody else has a king. We want one. Look at all our neighbors. Look at all these other kingdoms. Look at all these other rulers. Look at all these other places. They have a king. Why don't we have one, Samuel? Shows real ignorance to the heart of God for his people to begin with. The whole point was that they would be a people set apart. Not like all the other nations. That they would shine like stars in the sky or to go New Testament, they would be a city set on a hill standing out from the rest of the world. And yet here, their deep desire, as is the natural, instinctive desire of humanity, is to blend in, to be like everybody else. They show ignorance to their true identity as the chosen people of God. But also... And, they, and even to go on further, in verse 20, they'll say, we also may be like the other nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Clearly, not only are they arrogant, not only are they ignorant, but they are also showing some real forgetfulness here as to what God's been busy doing since he rescued them from Egypt. This demand for a king completely ignores the fact that God had been acting as their king from day one. Rescuing them, providing them, leading, directing, judging, teaching, all the roles of a king. God had been doing that on their behalf already, and they'd simply forgotten. They They wanted to be protected from their enemies, and they'd forgotten that God had already provided that for them. If we look at uh, verse chapter 12, this shows why they're, they're immediately afraid. Samuel points it out. He says, you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you. And so you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. We have this threat approaching us. The Ammonites are encroaching our territory, wanting to attack our people. We need help. Samuel says, you had help. God was your king. God had already stepped in many times on your behalf. Why do you need to look to a human king to do that for you? We're in chapter 8 today. If you just look at chapter 7, one chapter before we began, the Philistines are causing problems. And look at what happens with King God in charge. The Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. Not by Israel, before Israel. They were defeated by God, their king, as he, as he threw the Philistine army into mass confusion. They had a king to go before them in battle. They just forgot. Missed it. Completely ignored the reality of what had been put in front of them for years and years and years. And this is what people tend to do when circumstances stretch us or back us into a corner. We don't rely on the the reminders of God's faithfulness as much as we tend to take matters into our own hands and try to come up with some solution. Put in some man-made leader or idea to solve the problem for us, forgetting the way that the king had already proven himself time and time and time again. It wasn't enough that, that he had rescued them with his hand of plagues from Egypt. It wasn't enough that he had literally parted the seas for them so they could escape Pharaoh's army. It wasn't enough that he caused the walls of Jericho to crumble. 
without any of their help, unless you think walking around in a circle is helping somehow to make the structure of those walls fall down. But it wasn't enough. They forgot. And they demanded a king. They showed real forgetfulness and ignorance and arrogance, missing the perks of what it meant to be a child of God. It reminds me of something that happened even this week uh, in, in my car. I wasn't there, but my wife tells me all about it. She's riding around with my four-year-old, who's a very existential guy these days, digging into the deeper things of life and trying to figure things out. And from the back seat, he, he yells up, Mama, when do I get to meet King David? And so she kind of is trying to think through an answer, and Demi says, well, I guess you'll meet him when you get to heaven. And Eason says, well, I don't want to go to heaven. I have to die to go there. So she was kind of stuck on that. So she held there for a second and, and thought about how to respond to this four-year-old who's saying this and says, well, buddy, heaven is the greatest place you can go. Heaven is full of joy. Heaven has no sadness, no boo-boos. God is there and on and on and on and on. And he sat there and he pondered for a little while and he thought about what he said. And then from the back seat, he said, are there cinnamon rolls there? And so Demi's flipping through her concordance trying to find the answer. And all she can say is, "Ah, probably, I mean, (laughs) I don't know. And so I don't know how he took that answer, but from the back seat after her probably, he said, okay, fine, I'll go. (laughs) And, you know, we laugh at that. And it's it's, it's funny to hear that coming from a four-year-old, but that, that right there, that is the childish ignorance that completely misses the perks of what it means to be God's chosen people. All that he has supplied and provided and promised. And we just want a king with some skin, a cinnamon roll, when we've been offered almighty God. Arrogance, ignorance, forgetfulness, the people make their demands And here's how Samuel responds back to chapter 8 here. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. I'm struck by his displeasure. Obviously, he's angry on behalf of God. The God he's seeking to serve is now being mistrusted. People are not believing in God to provide for them. But also, this is sort of a personal attack at his ego as well. The people no longer see him as a, a fitting leader. And so he's obviously displeased. Heartbroken. And yet notice his reaction. He's displeased. And what, is, what does he do immediately following this displeasure? He goes to the Lord in prayer. Samuel's faith caused him to take his displeasure straight to his king in prayer. Take note of that. Because that's not how the elders responded. When the elders saw their circumstances... When the elders heard wind of the Ammonites headed this way, when the elders looked at how rough of a job Joel and Abijah were doing leading down in Beersheba, when the elders counted up the age of of Samuel, they did not fall to their knees in prayer to their king. They came together, grumbling and complaining, insulting their leader, and demanded a change. They took matters into their own hands 
And I believe we will do one of those two things with our circumstances. As we get stretched, as we get pushed into a corner, we will either try to take it into our own hands and solve the problem on our own, or we will, like Samuel, fall to our knees, take our displeasure to the Lord, and trust him to do something with it. Which are you? Which which am I? I? I know who I tend to be. But this is key for us to see the way Samuel responded. So he expresses this displeasure to God. And in verse 7, the Lord says to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The king they had was no longer good enough in their eyes, but God was not surprised. Matter of fact, if you go back to Deuteronomy, way before this happened, God actually predicted they would do such a thing. He said, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, that's what you'll say when you get all that. When I set you up so nicely, here's what you're going to do. You'll say, I will set a king over me. And he even pointed out their motive, like all the nations that are around me. God knew this was going to happen. God called it before it happened. And now here they are. He's not surprised. So he tells them, verse 8, this is what you want. I'm not surprised according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, forgetting how I've been a good king for them, even to this day, and serving other gods so they are also doing to you, Samuel. Verse 9, and now then, obey their voice. Do it. They want a king? Let them have it their way. Go for it. Set them up with the king, but make sure you warn them about what's going to happen when they do such a thing. Commentator Warren Wearsby puts it this way, the greatest judgment God can give us is to let us have our own way. He lets Israel have it their way in this case. We want a king, give us a person with skin to lead us, so be it, if that's what you want. He gives it over to them what they've asked for. Now, I want to point out, before, before demanding a king, with God as your king, here's what life looked at, looked like. God did most of the fighting. There was no need for a palace because there's no king. So you don't need servants and people to run the show there and provide resources and food and all this equipment and all that stuff to to keep a, a, a palace operating and to have all the servants a king would require. You've got a volunteer army. So there goes that expense and that cost because the, the guys fighting bring their own weapons with them and, and they're working for themselves and providing for their needs outside of the time when they need to fight. So they're able to be sort of independent there. It's a low cost, low, small government. I mean, like it's run by God, by his design and things work pretty smoothly at a very low cost. Very little is required of the people. But if you want a man to take over and become a king and you want to have what everybody else has, this is what God says it's going to take. I'm going to read, continuing from chapter 8, verse 11 on down. This is what Samuel tells him on behalf of God will, will happen if you get a human king. Listen for something repeated as I read this. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons 
and appoint them to his chariot and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. Do you hear what was said over and over and over and over again five times? He will take. You want a king to take my place? So be it. But it's going to cost you. He's going to take and take and take and take. And what he gives you in return will not compare to what I gave you. This is what it will cost to ask a human to be your your king. And this is the pattern that we see all throughout Scripture and all throughout history and all throughout our personal stories. This is the pattern of sin in our lives. Taking God, the rightful king, off of the throne of our heart and putting in his place something else, something man-made, a person, an idea, an addiction, whatever, putting it up there on the throne of our heart and saying, lead me, rule me, make my life better. And all it does is take and take and take and take at great cost. Never delivers on the promises you, you thought it would. So God says, are you sure that's what you want? I'll still be your king. He he asks him, verse verse 19, um, he gives him one last chance. You You can still have me as your king. Is this really what you want? And listen to what they say in verse 19. They refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. And so the Lord said, obey their voice. Give them what they asked for. Give them the king they so desperately want. The cost will be high, incredibly higher than they think. The reward will be so much lower than they expect. But give them what they want. And he points out in verse 17 and 18, you shall be slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king. This thing that you pleaded for is going to make you cry one day. Whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer in that day. If this is what you want, so be it, but you will regret it. So God allows Israel to dethrone the king of kings and put in his place some human king, some man-made solution that would only enslave, corrupt, and lead them astray. As Lord Acton puts it, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. In other words, the more power you are given, the more you will mess it up. It's just the human condition. It's who we are. Look back at Joel and Abijah, what started this whole mess. They, they were given a little bit of power, a little bit of authority, and so quickly they turned aside. So quickly they, they perverted justice and led people astray and took bribes. This is what made these elders frustrated to begin with, but they failed to see that they're setting themselves up for a pattern of repeating this over and over and over and over again. If you don't believe this statement, Jeremiah kind of confirms it. Jeremiah will 
kind of contrast for us people who trust in God versus those who trust in man. We get man first here, verses five and six. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. If you're counting on a human being to come through for you and you're trusting in them to solve your problems, to be your king, to lead you well, cursed, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. This is the person who puts their trust in a human leader, a human king, a human solution. But then on the other hand, this is who puts their faith in God. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord as king, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. You can be a shrub in the desert or you can be a a tree planted by a stream of water never ceasing to bear fruit. These are your two choices. Man-made solution, God as your king. Israel knows this ahead of time. They're, They're warned. And they say, we want the king. We'll try that out. And so this sets up a long cycle of human kings, man-made powerhouses that just screw up over and over and over again and lead the people further and further away from God. The theologian Brandon Smith would put it this way, we're always either wanting to be king or we're looking to imperfect people to lead us perfectly. Our kings never fulfill us. And like Israel, we never look to the king we already have. We are, we're so much like Israel, so quick to dethrone the majestic king because we think we can find a better way. And so we have to watch this long trail of history through the Old Testament, king after king after king of doing just this, even the good ones failing to lead perfectly and over and over and over again disappointing the Israelites. I want you to see though what it, what it does to our hearts as we notice this pattern over and over and over again. Dan set this up so great last week as he showed us the way that all of the Old Testament points us to the snake crusher, to the ultimate king of kings, to Jesus himself as the only one who can solve this great problem. But there's a long learning process to get there. But I want you to see, I just want to highlight a couple of these kings. And I want you to see how obvious it is, how clear it is that Jesus makes a better king than anything we have to offer. They'd make this demand in chapter 8, chapter 9. We get Saul. Saul's anointed. Saul's full of the spirit. He's excited to lead. He begins well as this this figure of what a man-made king would be like. I mean, perfect specimen of that. And he starts well. But he would eventually be destroyed by his own fear, his pride, his jealousy. And where we see Saul hiding behind his armor and eventually hiding behind this little shepherd boy that he would push out to the front lines and fight the battle for him. We see Christ entering not just the battlefield, but going to the very front line and offering himself up, his own life on behalf of his people. Jesus is a better king than Saul. David, who comes after, king after, man after God's own heart, led the people valiantly, brave, godly, but eventually passivity would keep him from going out with the kings when they went off to battle. He'd stay back. It was a weak king move and eventually commit adultery because of that move. 
And, and see this, where David covered up his sin by killing an innocent man. Christ covered all of our sin by his shed blood, dying as an innocent man for our sake. Christ is a better king than David. Solomon, wealthiest man, wisest man, only possessing the things that Jesus invented. Only managing the things that Jesus owned. And where he paraded around with all this knowledge and with a crown and all these jewels, Jesus would walk the streets of Nazareth with no possessions, dirty sandals, wear only a crown of thorns, only jewelry on his hands were some rusty nails. Jesus is a better king than Solomon. These are the good kings. These are the heroes. How about one of the bad ones? How about Ahab? Heard of him? Horrible king. Ahab, I want to show you a couple ways that these guys are different. Ahab followed after the path of his wicked father, Omri, who scripture says did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. And Ahab followed the wicked example of his father to a T. He built a temple to the false god Baal and led his people to follow in this idol worship. He would marry a pagan named Jezebel and that would even more pervert the ways of the people and, and distort his view of leadership. And he would ultimately lead his people away from God, lead them away from obedience and faithfulness. Whereas on the other hand, King Jesus perfectly followed the righteous path of his father, God. He would establish his own church by himself, a, a church for the one true God, he would choose a, a sinful bride, but instead of letting that lead the people away, he would redeem this sinful bride and lead his chosen people all the way home, a home that he had prepared for them. Jesus is a better king than Ahab. Obviously. How about the best we can do? Josiah. Scripture makes it pretty clear he was probably the best king. Became a king at a very young age. He led by example, led with authority as a servant of God with the teachings and commands of Scripture. He restored the law and traditions to their proper place. He purged the land of all pagan practice, left no stone unturned, even executed, offered up these false prophets on the altars. He did not cut any corners at restoring the right way for his people. He was as good as a human king could be. So much so that the writer of 2 Kings would say, before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after. In man's eyes and with man's strengths and man's solutions, this was as good as it gets. And yet the very next verse, verse 26 says, still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath. It wasn't enough. Because of what they had already done, by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provo provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. All of Josiah's leadership, all of his faithfulness to God could not do one thing. It could not divert God's righteous wrath from the people. He could correct them. He could set them up for a better future. He could reform them. He could do nothing about their sinful hearts. He could do nothing about their enmity with Creator God. He could do nothing about the wrath that they deserved to bear. 
Still, the Lord did not turn away. They needed a king that could do more than that. They needed a better king, one who could divert God's righteous wrath. Not by merely reforming the people who deserved the wrath and making them better, but by standing in their place. And this is exactly what King Jesus does. He diverts the righteous wrath of God by redirecting it off of us and onto himself. Fully bearing our iniquity, the weight of our sin, taking it upon himself, a righteous, innocent, perfect human being. And that and that alone can actually provide the people what they need. Jesus is a better king than Josiah. He's the king we need, but clearly the king we never wanted. This is why the people of Israel couldn't see it. This is why Jesus' followers couldn't see it. That's why they abandoned him, left him to be beaten and crucified alone. They, They didn't see it. From the Garden of Eden all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, we've turned our backs on the king we had because he wasn't the king we wanted. Over and over and over and over again, we've done this. We just can't seem to get it that no human being, no human idea can fix us. No king, no law, no reform, no policy, no structure, no election. None of that can fix the problem of people because people are the problem of people. We need the God-man to take our wrath upon himself. This is why I love what Romans 5, 9 says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is what he's done for us. Saved us from the wrath we deserve. Our enemies aren't the Ammonites. Our enemies aren't even ourselves as much as they are. Our greatest threat is the righteous wrath of God. And this is the need he has met. This is the problem he has solved. How do we resist him as king? This is the the king of Revelation 1 from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. There's none like him. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. There is no king like Jesus. He's the king that we need. He's the only king that can cut it. And yet we continue to resist. I just got to ask, if, like if that's you today, if you're here today and you say, that's, that's, I, I'm not letting him be king. Aren't you tired? Aren't you overwhelmed? Aren't you sick of the disappointment of putting someone up, maybe yourself, maybe a, a spouse or a, a a a key leader or a political party or a reform? Aren't you tired of putting it up on this throne in your life and watching it disappoint you? Failing to meet the needs it promises? Maybe it's time to pull it off of the throne. Maybe it's time to do what we see happening in the British monarchy. I don't know if you're familiar with this term, but there's a a thing that happens in the kings and queens of, of, of... Great Britain, when they make a decision to step away from the throne. It's called abdicating the throne. 
They can abdicate their place, give up their rights as the king to someone else. Pretty rare thing, 1,200 years of a, of a kingdom. It's only happened four times because as we've already seen, who wants to give up power? But when a king or a queen does that, they abdicate the throne. And I just wonder if there's even one person today who would say, today needs to be my abdication day. Today needs to be the day that I step off of the throne of my life Surrender that right to the rightful king, the majestic king, the king I've needed from day one but failed to see. Let's dethrone whatever, whatever is in his place. Let's come to the realization that this king, King Jesus, is a good king and he deserves our allegiance. He deserves our lifelong devotion. He can be trusted with every single petty affair we have to bring before him. But this king demands and deserves bent knees, repentant hearts, and confessing mouths that say, yes, your majesty. It's the only response necessary. Yes, I will follow you. I will trust you not only to save my life, Oh, valiant king, which we want that. Save us. We're in need. But also to completely lead my life, your royal highness. This is our response to the king. We can speak that way with confidence because this King Jesus is the king of kings, conqueror of Satan, sin and death, satisfier of God's righteous wrath, supplier of salvation, freedom, forgiveness, rescue, hope, eternal life, purpose for all his chosen children who believe. Jesus, our great King, is worthy of it all. He's worthy of our yes, your majesty. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.